Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network, where we take a closer look each week at the wide, weird, and wonderful world of running. I'm your host, Jonathan Ellsworth. I'm also the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Off the Couch is presented by CBG Trails. The CBG Trails app is the only complete trail map app of Crested Butte and the Gunnison Valley, Colorado. So download the app today and start exploring. It wouldn't be wrong to say that today's episode is about the expansion of our imagination as to what is humanly possible. And while that might sound really grandiose, it's also true. On Saturday, August 25th, 2019, Zach Bitter set a new world record for the fastest time that a human being has run 100 miles. He ran 100 miles in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. That's right, 100 miles in 11 hours, 19 minutes, and 13 seconds. And what do you do for an encore when you've just set a new world record for the fastest recorded 100-mile run? If you're Zach Bitter, you keep on running, and then you set another world record. This one for the longest distance run in 12 hours, where Zach ran 104.8 miles. To call Zach's effort remarkable is an understatement. And so it was an honor to talk to Zach just a few days after his big day. And as you are about to hear, almost as impressive as Zach's accomplishment is his ability to walk us through the day, his training for the event, why he considers this to be his masterpiece, his perspective on other world records, why he thinks we need to celebrate more runners and a wider range of running events, and more. And so here it is, my conversation with the holder of two new world records, Zach Bitter. Well, Zach, how are you today and where are you today? I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm, I'm bouncing back pretty quick from, from Saturday's race and uh, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona now. So just kind of enjoying the, the hot summer days. <laughs> Saturday's race, man, this, it's wild to me that like this still just happened. And I think if we were actually conducting this conversation with you in a hospital somewhere hooked up to a bunch of IVs, that would make a whole lot of sense. So let's talk a little bit about, so exactly how good are you feeling right now? Yeah, so I usually kind of look at post-race recovery when it's a kind of an A race or a peak race anyway, in kind of the lens of about a two-week time frame. So when I first finish, you know, that after that race, you know, I'm pretty sore and tight. And then the the Two days after that, there's just noticeable soreness, achiness, you know, regardless of what you're doing. But then usually by that kind of third day or so, I can move around, walk around without really noticing a whole lot. Uh, and then it's like uh, I'm in a position at that point where physically I could probably run and not feel terrible. Uh, but it's also kind of early to be taking on any new projects yet at that point. So uh, I'll, I'll typically take a couple more days off or if I do go running it's like pretty low-key like you know 20 minute just kind of shuffling around type of a thing uh and then by the second weekend usually then I can 
start wrapping my head around maybe doing a little more of a of a structured run nothing crazy or anything like that or no speed work usually or anything like that but just kind of testing to see where i'm at and like what position i am to kind of start planning for whatever i'm doing next and then that second week i'll start running more consistently but still without like a whole lot of uh direction necessarily where i'm not like doing this workout specifically to be prepared for x race down the road or anything like that so i'm definitely still kind of in the window of recovery is the primary goal so if i do anything that's going to negatively affect that then i just simply won't and i've never had it take two weeks like i always give myself the the flexibility to take two complete weeks off if i if i need to i just haven't really found myself in that position yet both physically or mentally and I mean, to, to say that you often are back running, even, even if it's just the 20 minutes, but within that first week, that is a quicker turnaround than a lot of ultra runners. Is, is it not? Or in your experience, you're like, ah, I don't know, totally depends on the person. Yeah, I mean, there's a huge spectrum. I mean, you get guys like Michael Wardian, who does a race the day after his race. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and so he's kind of the extreme on the the aggressive side. And then, I mean, there's there's folks who I think are a little more new to the sport or they don't put in quite as much volume as maybe I do who just get a little more wrecked by the, by the race. You know, the, the thing that I find kind of dictates the amount of recovery that personally I need is just how specific did I get to training for that, that event. So if it's like a flat 100 miler, if I did a really big buildup on flat terrain, I mean, that my body is very well adapted to that. So it just doesn't kind of destroy me quite as much. Whereas if I did a flat, if I did like my training block for this race and then went out and, you know, ran in the mountains somewhere with a lot of downhill running, I would have been just completely wrecked from a like eccentric contraction standpoint. And similarly, vice versa too, I would imagine. I haven't really angled it from this direction all that often, but if I were training for like a mountain race and then went and ran a hundred miles flat, I'd probably be a lot more worse for the wear than I am now. Let's talk about Saturday. This is just so interesting and amazing to me. Explain what you did on Saturday. Yeah. So Saturday was, uh, you know, kind of a, a breakthrough day for me. Uh, I've been more or less targeting this, uh, hundred mile world record and the world record side of it is less of the drive, I guess, at this point in my career, as much as it is just me trying to see how fast can I actually run a hundred miles. I was just in a position to where I was close enough to the world record where it made a really nice kind of target for me in training and when I'm in the competitions themselves. But I more or less got kind of interested in that back in 2013 after doing my first event of this sort at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational. And uh, I've had a few attempts between now and then that didn't quite go as well as I would have liked, but you know, some of them were still pretty solid races. Just I could easily identify areas that I needed to improve upon. Whereas on Saturday, I feel like this was by far my best executed race, certainly on the track. Uh, I was a little more conservative early on in that I went through the halfway mark of hundred miles, so 50 miles in five hours, 40 minutes and 38 seconds and then ultimately ran the second 52 minutes and three seconds faster with like 538 and some change. So that was just a little different. And with that comes kind of the psychological burden, I think, in terms of just staying focused in a race, doing it in a way that you're maybe not quite as accustomed to. So 
if I had to pinpoint a point in the race where I had the most amount of doubt about whether I was going to actually break the record or not, it was, it was probably in that 40 to kind of 55 mile range. Uh, and part of it was just kind of, it was like, a, like I mentioned, it's like a mental block I needed to get through. I needed to get through this mindset that I'm going to positive split. And I mean, that was just from experience. I've always positive split hundred milers. So it was like here, it's, it's kind of similar to that uncharted waters type of thing where you're doing something for the first time. It's hard to really, there's just a certain level of anxiety that's carried with that because you just don't have that, that background or those breadcrumbs of what's going to probably happen. So for those that stretch in the middle there, you know, I was thinking like, well, if this plays out the same way as my other hundred milers, which in my mind, there's a good chance it would just because I mean, history is the, the kind of like your, what your reference point is. And I was like thinking at a few points where like, I just, I'll maybe PR, but not break the hundred mile world record. And for a little bit there, my mind had shifted towards that where I was like, well, stay moving and stay consistent because I mean, even if you don't break the world record and run say 1138 or even, you know, 1142, it's still going to be a solid performance that I can kind of have on my resume or so to speak at the end of the year. Uh, but then, you know, as I kind of got, I, I got a few good laps in there kind of in the end of the 50 mile range, early in the 60 mile range. And that kind of got my confidence going again. I was kind of back down near that 640 mile pace. And once I started kind of closing in on that 60 mile range or into the 60 mile range, I just got closer and closer to where I was at a point where it was just another weekend long run worth of distance. And when I got there, my mind shifted from, okay, I'm out here for 12 hours. I'm trying to run a hundred miles and all the mental burden that comes with trying to wrap your head around that to, I just have one more solid long run left to do. And I've done that many times. So I guess the easiest way to describe this, my mind shifted from an unknown to a very, very relatable scenario. And that'll let me, I think, probably push a little harder than I would have otherwise because I just felt comfortable doing it because I, I took a self-assessment and realized my legs feel fine. My energy levels are fine. There's no reason why I can't run a really solid three and a half hours going forward. Uh, and then when I got to mile 80, I kind of had another bit of motivation that likely wouldn't have been there had I not done this event a few times. And it was basically just a reflection on Desert Solstice in 2015 where I had excellent splits going through 100k i actually split 100k in six hours and 58 minutes which was about five minutes faster than i came through 100k at at the dome on saturday and uh it, at that day though when i got to around mile 80 81 i had been starting to fade a little bit and the race director told me that i needed to average about a seven minute mile pace for that last 20 miles to break the world record and I wasn't running seven minute mile pace at that point. So I knew I had to throttle down a little bit if I wanted to get it. So I had like one more gasp, like 80 miles, 81 to 82. And then it just kind of like, I lost the ability to kind of push through that and slowed to like maybe like a 7.30 to eight minute pace range for that last like 15-ish so miles. So in the back of my mind, when I got to mile 80 on Saturday, I kind of put myself back in that position and just kind of just reflected on how many times between now and then that that has come up in my mind where I looked at it as somewhat of a missed opportunity, you can say. I mean, I still ran an American record that day, but knowing I had myself in a position at 80 miles to break the world record and missed it is definitely something that's motivated me in training and something that I think about a lot. 
So when I got to that point on the race, my mind just went to like, that happened three years ago and it's not going to happen this time. So let's, <laughs> there's so many elements of what you've just said that, that warrant their own specific, you know, rabbit hole. And we'll, we'll get to some of them, but let's back up for a second. And I'd like to have you kind of set the stage for us a bit more on this race day on Saturday. Talk a little bit about the specific location and the kind of logistics of this thing. You weren't just on a track by yourself, right? Like like set the stage for where this where this was done and where this world record happened. Yeah, I'll I'll mention I think whenever you find yourself on a, you know, a a track 400ish meters, you know, chasing a time goal like that, you, I mean your your motivation for doing that is to chase a specific time and try to eliminate as many variables as you can that would slow you down which is kind of a contrast to the trail running side of the sport where, you know, logistics are kind of the, the excitement of it. It's like, let's put a ton of logistics in the way and just see who can navigate them and who can problem solve the best. And this is kind of a little different where you're like, let's get rid of all of that stuff and just see how fast we can go when everything is optimized. And at this particular event, so many things check the box for optimization. I mean, the Pettit Center is the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's the home of uh, like hockey tournaments and speed skating competitions. So they keep it at like 55 to 60 degrees in there. It's indoors, so no sun. So there was zero environmental concern. I didn't have to worry about rain. I didn't have to worry about wind. I didn't have to worry about direct sunlight, temperatures getting too hot or anything like that. So it's a lot easier to kind of dial in that as well as your hydration and fueling because you know exactly what the environment is going to give you for that. Um, you know, it's, it's a fast track, zero inches of elevation gain and loss, essentially. Uh, the biggest hurdle that I haven't controlled yet, um, is just like what you mentioned, there's other people out on the track and the distances and times I'm targeting are different than what most people are doing. Like I'm oftentimes jumping into a like 24 hour event where the folks out there who are doing that are just seeing how far they can get in 24 hours. So they need to be pacing themselves much differently than I do, uh, which means I'm going to be the fastest moving person on the track often. And uh, that means with the track protocol that I have to go around, that's how that, that's just how it is. Like the, the passer is the, the rule is the passer goes around. Um, so 443 meter track, 30, 40 people on there, some doing 24 hours, some doing 48. Uh, I'm in lane two and three quite a bit on the turns. So, you know, it's just inevitable that I'm going to add some distance to the actual distance or have to run a little bit faster for the pace I got because of that. But with that said, that's literally the only kind of hurdle that I wasn't able to account for at this. Uh, so, I mean, some part of me likes that just because now I have this like added incentive to be like, well, if I run the exact same race down the road and eliminate that variable, maybe I can take 10 more minutes off without even running any faster. Uh so there's that, but, uh, and it's also like it, you know, it's ultra marathon running. It's still kind of a niche sport. This is certainly a niche of a niche. And, uh, you know, you, you got to kind of operate with the, the frameworks you're given and the race directors and the other runners out there are doing everything they can to make it as easy for me to kind of run fast and run smooth as I can. So at the end of the day, you just be grateful for what you got. I just find this really interesting. Like you, you said it really well, but like, 
Western states this year, right? I mean, what we heard so much about was, you know, people post-holing in snow along the way. And it's like, well, that's really interesting. And let's just throw all these different elements at people and see, see who comes out first. But I think this other end of the spectrum where it is just about let's optimize, reduce all the variables, and like let's just see how fast human beings can cover 100 miles in, that's a fascinating thing. And I think, you know, this gets at the heart of, um, I mean, a lot of things you do, I mean, including this podcast of yours, right, that is really focused on just human performance and Op, the optimization of performance. And so it's funny, like I was, one of the reasons I was really interested in speaking to you was just that like, on the one hand, I see you as a student of just human performance in general, and you're curious and you talk to PhDs and the cutting edge researchers in a whole realm of different areas. But then you're also the dude like on the track trying to figure this out and you know, be the engine yourself. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I think that's the draw to it for me at the end of the day is the curiosity side of things. Uh, I just really like to scale things down to the individual level and find like, well, maybe this is what is supposed to work for people based on the current research, but this is what my body's telling me is gonna work. And uh, where I guess I have a bit of expertise would be in my own individual uh, framework. I mean, I've got 10 years, 50,000 miles-ish worth of running and workouts and racing that I can reflect back on and say, this is what happens when I do this. This is what happens when I do this and that sort of thing. So um, for me, I think I look at it as like, read whatever you can, listen to whoever is willing to talk and keep an open mind, stay curious. But at the end of the day, you know, no laboratory tests or no like, you know, clinical trial is necessarily going to tell me how exactly I'm going to feel as an individual. So I need to be focused on performance foremost. And if I focus on that as my primary goal, it makes it a lot easier just to gravitate towards what's going to improve that as opposed to what, you know, someone tells me should or what someone, what works for someone else, so to speak. So on Saturday, two world records were set. What were those two specific records? Yeah, so the first one was the 100-mile world record, which uh, had stood for 17 years. A guy named Oleg Kertanov from Russia broke it in 2002 at the Crystal Palace in the UK. He ran 11 hours, 28 minutes, and 3 seconds. And that was a bit of an exciting event because prior to that, the record had stood for 25 years. Uh, it was a, a Scottishman named uh, Don Ritchie who had run 11 hours and 30 minutes and some change. And the, the goal of that specific event at the Crystal Palace was to see if they could break that 11 and a half hour record. And there were two, two gentlemen who were going for it more or less. And one of them went out super hard. I think he even broke five hours for the first 50 miles, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the true historians will maybe call me out on that. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure. And But generally speaking, Oleg ran a more, I guess, uh, conservative or less aggressive race. And he was just really hammering at home at the end. And I think he passed, uh, or took the lead with like less than a mile to go. And they finished within like a minute of one another, both under the old world record. And, and then Oleg's time has stood since. And, uh, you know, for me, that's just been kind of a cool little benchmark to try to target. 
The second one was a 12 hour. So there's also these timed events uh, that you just see how far you can get in a specific amount of time. And the 12 hour one fits nicely within the framework of what I'm doing for a hundred miles. Cause usually it's, I'm not so far under 12 hours that it's impossible to wrap my head around staying out there and shuffling around for a bit. Uh, but it's, uh, it's not, it's not too fast where I'm going to finish above that in most cases, if I have a good day. So when I finished in 11, 39, 13, I had just over 40 minutes to kind of see how many, how many more laps I could get in. And ultimately I got 4.88 miles in that last 40 minutes and 47 seconds to get the world record for 12 hours at 104.88. By the way, did you just misspeak? I think you said when you finished in 1139. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, 19. <laughs> <You're>, <laughs> don't sell yourself short, man. I mean, this is, that's, a, that's a big, pretty big deal. Um, I like that you don't know your own record time. That's great. <laughs> so of the two records, I mean, one, I, was there a temptation to just like, you broke the world record, any temptation to like, just stop, pop some champagne and <laughs> call it a, call it an amazing day? Or did you, you're like, cool, I guess I just broke that record. Let's keep this going. There's a lot of head, there's a lot of mental things going on, I think, on this particular day. Yeah, you know, that's actually an interesting kind of side note in itself because I learned about the 12 hour timed event for the first time at mile 90 at the Desert Solstice Track Invitational in 2013. I went to that event specifically targeting the American record for 100 miles, which at the time was 11 hours and 59 minutes by John Olson. And I got to mile 90, just fixated on that goal. And I knew I was on pace and I just needed to kind of maintain. And then one of the, the RDs came up to me around then and said, so if you kind of keep pace and keep going when you hit 100 miles until you get to 12 hours, you're probably going to break the world record for that. And that was kind of cool because at that point in time, I needed something else to think about other than 100 miles because I was getting kind of fatigued after being out there for that long. Uh, that it actually helped spur me to speed up a little bit. And uh, at that point, I think I was at my current pace, I would have maybe run like, I think I calculated time, like somewhere between five to seven minutes under John Olson's American record at the time. And after hearing that, I sped up enough to end up getting about 12 minutes under it with a time of 11.47. And that year I kept going, got to 12, ran a 101.7, which was uh, the new world record for 12 hours. Um, then in 2015, when I went after the world record for 100 miles at Desert Solstice, I literally just like stopped and collapsed on the track when I hit 100 miles at 11 hours, 40 minutes and 55 seconds and just left that remaining 19-ish minutes on the um on the, on the board, so to speak. So in the back of my mind, uh, I try not to think too much about the 12 hour thing while I'm still focused on the hundred mile part, because, you know, ultimately that was the primary goal, but I did kind of have it in the back of my mind. Once I was pretty certain, like, okay, this is going to happen. Mine is something catastrophic that like, don't stop, just keep moving. Even if you are like barely hobbling around, you can at least get to one Oh two I mean, I could have walked to 102 at that point. So the motivation, I think, was there to to keep going. Had I, you know, had I run like, say, 1143 or something like that, then maybe I stopped just because I'm really not going to do any meaningful improvement on it, if at all. So the fact that I finished, you know, over 40 minutes under was, I think, a lot of motivation to try to stay out a bit because I knew I could add a, a few miles to to that old, that old uh, mark. So... 
that's kind of the, the, the thought process, I guess, going into it. So in hindsight now, how do you feel about these two respective world records? Um, is this like a parent, you know, who has two kids and somebody's like, well, which, <laughs> which, which kid do you like more? And you're like, no, no, it's the same. I mean, yeah, I'd say if they were two kids of mine, I would feel horrible for that 12 hour kid because <laughs> they're getting way less love. No. <laughs> I appreciate yeah, I, the honest answer. Well, and part of that too is just like the 12 hour timed event is a bit more nebulous in that it's a very, it's not often sought after in its entire, in an entirety. So I can't think of a whole lot of examples of people going out and just focusing that primarily. How fast can I run 12 hours? You see some guys with some epic splits in 24 hour races that are putting up some freakishly high numbers the first 12 hours. Uh, and that's where actually a lot of those time marks have come from. Uh, the most notable is Giannis Kuros, who has the 24-hour world record with just a little bit over 188 miles. And he had the 12-hour record before I did. I don't think it was during his world record 24-hour performance, but it was another one where he decided to take a little more of an aggressive approach. And he came through in like, like just under 101 miles, I think. So, I mean, he, he ran for another 12 hours after that. So it's also kind of got a little bit of that where like, I think like if we saw a bunch of guys all just decide for whatever reason, the 12 hour timed event was the, the coolest kid on the block, you know, we'd, we'd see some pretty high numbers relative to what I did. I think we'd get up, you know, maybe even close to 110 or something like that. Let's go back to talking about some of the specific logistics on Saturday you know, you're in this controlled environment, which you've talked about other than like having, I mean, how many passes did you make that day? Oh, like passing people? Yeah. Yeah. So it's hard to know. Cause, uh, like I'm passing people almost every turn. There's a few turns where I would just happen to have it timed just right where I come around and there's nobody there. Uh, but there was no lap where I wasn't passing people because if I'm not passing them on the turn, I'm passing them on the straightaway which is a little easier because you move out on the straightaway and you don't add quite as much distance. You had a little bit just from the moving out and moving back in. But uh, yeah, I mean, there wasn't a lap where I didn't have to move out into lane two or three at some point. And uh, I would estimate that my, my time in lane one was probably more than my time in lane three, uh, but lane two was kind of the majority of it. So it's probably an average of maybe like had I just been kind of just on the inside of lane two for the entire race. Like had I been the only one out there and just kind of instead of running on the very inside of lane one, I'm running right on the outside of lane one, kind of flirting into lane two, like right on that line, I guess you could say. I worry that if I were you, as the mental state started to fray a little bit, I would have just started pushing people out of the way or something. So <laughs> it's probably good that I'd never even attempt something like this. Uh, well, it is kind of funny, though, because like every once in a while, someone will like technically everyone's supposed to stay in lane one unless they're moving to pass. But every once in a while, someone will kind of drift out into lane two for whatever reason. And and I'll see that as I'm coming up and I'm like, ooh, and I'll take advantage of it and kind of shoot in lane one and go by him on the inside. And I, I feel kind of bad though, because <laughs> when I'll, I'll do that and I, 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 I startle him to some degree coming through. <laughs> yeah. And so a big question I had was, 
How many people do you have there kind of assisting on this? Are they every single lap giving you splits or times or information? Are you are you somebody who wants as much as many possible numbers as you can get? Or are you just looking at your watch? Or are you trying to not look as often as you could? How do you approach the like, it's useful to be getting in this much information, but you cross that line and now we're just into like, this is keeping too much information coming to the point of where it's maybe overload and not helpful. Yeah, that's a really good question. I usually, I'll have a crew out there. I mean, I technically wouldn't need more than one person because I see them every almost quarter mile. Uh, but, you know, my family lives really close to the Pettit Center. So I had like a bunch of family out there, plus my wife, that were all kind of helping out in shifts. Uh, from the, so I usually like for them, I just relegate, like manage my nutrition side of things, hand that stuff off kind of baton style so that uh, I don't have to stop for that. And then uh, the time checking i don't worry i don't have them worry about that so much because these events typically have like a timing mat and a big screen right next to it so you cross that mat and you can see exactly what your lap split was so then it just becomes a balance of how often do you want to know that and what i what i like to do is i like to kind of spend a few laps in the beginning kind of calibrating my relative effort to the split and i'll always go in with kind of a range of like where I want my lap splits to be so I can kind of like dial that in. Once I get that dialed in, I kind of just put it in cruise control more or less and try not to overly fixate on that because checking it every lap can be, like you mentioned, kind of mentally fatiguing. And if you do that too often, you might wear yourself out before you get to the finish. So what I'll end up doing then is I get that rhythm in when I'm in that frame or within that range I'm targeting. And then I'll just spot check every once in a while just to make sure I'm still in that range. You know, sometimes I'll be drifting out of it a little bit. So it's like, okay, I got to watch it a couple laps in a row now just to recalibrate. And then once I get the rhythm again, again, I just kind of go back to that. And it goes back and forth. Uh, Once I get in the back, maybe fifth to a quarter of the race, I start looking at it a little more aggressively just because at that point, it's like I'm considering how fast I think I can go. Uh, so I'm trying to take inventory a bit on like where my effort level is versus what type of splits it's producing. And on this particular day, were you like, my God, everything is just aligning. I mean, did this feel like one of your best race days ever or the best race day ever for you? Yeah, I'd have a hard time identifying one that I would call better. Uh, it was certainly, it was probably my best executed race almost in in general outside of even just this specific event uh so i mean i think it's just it since it was so new it was kind of tough to wrap my head around it during the event itself but i mean looking back at it i i guess if there's something that i'm still trying to process it's just how it all played out uh you know i mean it it looks kind of <laughs> without trying to sound arrogant i mean it looks beautiful on paper because you know, you look at it and you're like, everything was accounted for here. Like you, the pit stops were accounted for, the effort was accounted for. I went just fast enough at the end and not so that it was, you know, beneficial for my end time, but not so much faster that people would question, oh, well, clearly he should have went out 10 minutes faster that first 50 miles. So that's where I think it, like if I'm, if I'm looking at it from like the artist perspective, like 
I feel like that's my masterpiece. Hmm. That's really, that's really fucking cool to just when moments in life happen and we're like, that's it, man. I, that's, that's, that's my masterpiece. Well said. Um, and yeah, um, <laughs> congratulations. I mean, whether that's a world record or a PR or just finishing a race, I mean, I think, I mean, I think that's the thing that just a lot of runners listening to can probably resonate with that. You know, when you did the work and you executed and it, whatever the goal was, again, whether it's just finishing a given race, um, that's a really, really cool thing. Yeah. And I think it also paired really nicely with my training block leading into because the training block I had, I mean, you're always kind of a little bit guessing to some degree as to like, did I do just enough? Did I do a little too much or did I not do quite enough? And I came away from that training block feeling like I did exactly as much as I should have to maximize my return on that investment without going too much or getting greedy and trying to take off a little too much and then coming up a little a little flat on race day. Uh, and it was an aggressive enough build too where I looked back at it and it was really hard to like think of it as like, oh, well, if I would have done one more long run here or if I would have you know, stretch that week out a little longer, I would have maybe gotten a few more seconds here or there. So when I have that piece of the puzzle as well, it's, it's kind of pretty satisfying, like holistic experience. Yeah. It's obviously not just about those 12 hours on the track. It's about the weeks and months prior to that as well that have to get dialed. When would you say you specifically started prep for Saturday how how far in advance you know yeah so uh the specifically for it was a little interesting like the, the whole thing was a little interesting actually because what I've been doing since I've been out here in Phoenix now is I have access to almost every training terrain that you could imagine within being in one spot that if I want to do like a trail race that's runnable I have access to that if I want to do a trail race that's got steep climbs and descents I can do that if I want to do a race technical, I've got access to that sort of trail. And then I got flat stuff too. So uh, really it comes down to me kind of picking which which type of train I'm most excited to train on and then picking a race that matches that. So since I have, in the past, I haven't lived in environments that have that much like variability. So it was kind of a no brainer. Like, well, if I want to maximize my performance, I better do a race like this because that's the train I have access to. And, uh, you know, since being out here and having that variety, I've been more or less kind of structuring my seasons into kind of two categories where I'll do half the year kind of doing more trail based stuff. And the second half, they are doing more flat runnable, like, you know, fast time type stuff. And this year, my mind was more in line with the trails in January. So I picked the San Diego hundred and that's an early June. So then I knew like, okay, at the end of June, probably need most of June just to kind of bounce back from that and start getting them wheels moving again before I can start actually implementing any serious structured training. So that brings you to kind of like the beginning of July, more or less. And that's a tight window, really tight window for the timeline I had. When you take out the taper, I'm looking at like essentially eight, nine weeks of real real solid work in there and more or less like ideally I like to have like maybe a 16 week block where I really focus in on kind of starting from things that are least specific to the race and dialing those in and then as I kind of inch closer to the race start 
periodizing things that are more close to race day intensity and race day environment. So I was left with essentially half of that timeline. So what I ended up doing is I kind of just cut off that, that what I would consider least specific segment of training that would be like those short interval, like VO2 max type workouts and got more right into like doing kind of a maximum aerobic function training plan with uh, sprinkling and some threshold runs here and there and just building up my long run. Uh, I may have benefited a bit from the beginning of the year before I decided to target San Diego. I was just doing a bit more kind of speed work and some of those faster, shorter interval sessions, just as my wife was actually preparing for some marathon stuff to kind of start her year before she got into more ultra type stuff. So we were just doing a little more speed work than maybe we normally would in December and January. So I may have a little bit of, I may have lucked out where I kind of got that block in just a little bit further out than what I would normally probably position it. Um, but with that said, you know, even when you look at my pace for this hundred mile of like 647 and a half, uh, that still puts me in a position where the majority of my running is going to be over speed rate, over speed training relative to the race intensity. So my main goal kind of going into that last four weeks where I did my kind of my my cornerstone block of training was piling as many miles as you can at or just below race or just faster than race pace intensity and then sprinkling a couple threshold runs but ultimately just kind of continue to build volume in that and really settle that in and that seemed to work really well um after say i had three weeks that were kind of big builds within that four week context with one deload week where i kind of reduced volume and intensity just to let everything kind of catch up and uh the first two were 130 mile and 150 mile week and the 150 mile week ended with a a back-to-back long run on saturday and sunday that ended up being roughly a little over a third of my um of my training volume that week and those two workouts went really really well i think i i think i had one of them was like a 631 mile pace and the other one was a 625 they were both three hours long. It was on a dirt track, so it was pretty specific in terms of the loops and that sort of thing. Uh, the thing that excited me the most is, you know, here in Phoenix, the both those runs I ended and it was 100, 100 plus degrees. So, so I just knew, like, knowing that the Pettit Center was going to almost literally be half of that. Like, I felt like, like, well, had I done this workout on the Pettit Center, it's like, you know, I might be going 15 seconds per mile faster. So I was really, really confident in my fitness at that point. And then I just had that one deload week and one more 150 mile week. And uh, that was kind of the, the bulk of my, my, my cornerstone uh, block of training. And that kind of put me in really good position, I think, mentally, because I very much trusted that process. And I very much had confidence that like everything I did in training indicated that I can be in the 640 minute mile range for 100 miles. And now I just got to handle the mental side of it and navigate that. And if you do that, don't have any like bathroom disasters. It's like, let, let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm finding myself thinking like, cool. So you also managed to like not roll an ankle in training. So I, I presume you stayed pretty injury free in the lead up to this. And I take it that your sleep tended to be good and consistent and you managed to like not get sick or, you know, like you, things didn't get knocked offline, I presume. And I guess my question is how 
much of that do you feel like was a factor of just good luck or how much do you feel like, dude, I've been, you know, <laughs> I've been doing this for a minute. Like I know how to try to like keep consistency on all of these important, really important variables and factors. Yeah. You know, it's a, uh, it's a combination of both those things. I mean, like you can always have a freak accident, like a rolled ankle or you come down with the flu or something like that. And, and really kind of have uncontrollable things influence your training block. I tend to try not to worry about those because it's like, I can't, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. Sleep is a huge one though. Um, you know, I've more or less optimized my sleep quite a bit the last, the last few years. So I feel like that's a huge tool I kind of have at my disposal as I'm routinely able to get like eight to nine hours of sleep at night and sleep really, really soundly. And, and that certainly helps with the second half of training, which is recovery. Um, and then it's also like, like, like you said, like I've done this before, I've had bigger training blocks than that in the past. So it wasn't really a question in my mind of like, okay, if I do this, do I, do I have any track record of knowing whether I can push that volume without getting hurt? I, I definitely do have that. So that didn't really scare me as much. And you also kind of get good at listening to your body too. So in those, say like those 150 mile weeks, if I had gotten to a point where like my body was saying, what are you doing? You're no longer micro stressing. You're starting to macro stress. I would have scaled back and settled for a 130 mile week or something like that. So some of it is just a combination of, am I motivated enough to put in this level of work? And uh, is my body going to put up with it? And am I going to respond to my body appropriately? So I think it's nice to put some of these numbers on a program to target if you kind of have an idea of whether you can do them or not, but ultimately you can't have that hold you hostage if you need to take the extra day off. So uh, for me, it just ended up working out really well. Like the plan I drew up uh, ended up playing out almost exactly, if not better than what I could have expected. And uh, I think that's got quite a bit to do with how things went both physically and mentally on race day. But it is interesting too, when you think about it, like, you know, I, I did a huge block like that before 2015 and, it after the race at desert solstice there it took me a while to kind of get mentally and physically motivated to want to train and race again because you put in those massive blocks and they do require some some respect and uh, i i guess like since then i've done some pretty big blocks nothing as big as what i did that lead into 2015 so in the back of my mind i did always kind of think about like all right i'm gonna want to find the motivation or the reason to maybe do another approach like that down the road and just see what happens and uh, to be honest what really spurred it this year when i went to the western states 100 to crew and pace my wife nicole uh you know i was paying attention to the men's lead pack as well and i mean we saw jim walmsley and jared hazen just absolutely redefine that sport uh, or that event and uh i mean jim twice over essentially because he kind of did that last year and then I mean, Jared, especially like he, he, uh, I don't think anyone other than him probably thought he was going to pop up 1423 that day. Um, and, uh, I mean, that's huge props to that guy. Cause you know, going into that with that kind of uh, a mindset, you know, like he blows up doing that and everyone just like pokes fun and says, Hey, look, look at this guy thinking he can run with Jim and then he pays for it dearly. And it's like, no, he just stayed on him and ended up running what I would imagine is the race of his life. And uh, the only reason why his race isn't probably just international news is because 
Jim ran 1409. And, uh, but to be, to, to the point, like those guys are, I would say they're not afraid to play with fire a little bit. Um, they know what they're capable of. They, they've done training plans that are high in volume before. So they have an idea of how their body's going to respond to it. Uh, but you know, it still takes some risk. I mean, you look at, you know, look at Jared the year before that, you know, he put in a, a training week of like 170 miles with 30,000 feet of climbing and descending and ended up having it be just a little too much. And he got dinged up before and didn't make it to the starting line. So, uh, I'm guessing, but if I, if I asked Jared, I would assume if I asked him, like, would you have rather made it to States both years and run 14, 59, both years? Or would you have rather made it once and run 1423? I'm guessing he's taken the 1423. So, I mean, everyone needs to weigh that in their own mind too. So like, it's not necessarily a slam dunk that it's going to be the best way. And some people might just do better, respond better on lower volume too. So I think knowing yourself and taking inventory of how things have affected your races, affected your life, affected your training, affected your stress levels. uh, And then just, are you enjoying it? Like if you're not enjoying, you know, putting in 20 plus hour weeks, then it's kind of silly to do it. Kind of staying in this, I guess it's a little bit more of like philosophy of training and how we think about these things. I wanted to ask you, I've, I've just recently um, had the opportunity to have really interesting conversations with a couple of pretty accomplished, very experienced runners and coaches, um, Ian Sharman and David Roche. And, you know, it was so interesting, and and I do not mean this to be sort of, um, uh, I don't want to do some reductive take. Um, these guys are obviously sophisticated, and but a couple of the key things that in each of the conversations I had with them that they each talked a whole lot about, um, well, in the case of Ian, he just kept emphasizing the need uh, in training to not go too hard on your easy days, right? And to just, he's like, this is the mistake that I see time and time again from whether it's, you know, new runners or really accomplished runners is there just is not enough separation and distinction between the the hard days and the easy ones. Does that resonate with you or do you, are you like, yeah, I don't know. That's just not really how I personally tend to, that's not an important hallmark, you know, for me to keep in mind in my own training. Yeah, no, I think, uh, I think Ian and I would see eye to eye on that for the most part. And I think when, when Ian says that he's looking at kind of the, the bulk of people out there. And I do think like, I do think there's this like, kind of an, maybe, I don't know if it's incentive or this, for whatever reason, this draw to, you know, never run slow enough to truly be a recovery run or, uh, which then compromises your ability to actually find your more aggressive, like, like keystone workouts. So that, that I think is something that almost like the majority of people could probably benefit from doing a little better, uh, research on in terms of like, finding out where their physical needs are within that. Um, Because ultimately it's like a pretty individual question too, because I mean, I guess when we're looking at relative intensity, it's pretty uniform. Whereas like, you know, an easy run for say Ian versus an easy run for someone who's in the back half of the pack are going to feel the same, but 
you know, Ian might just be going a little faster and that person might be going a little slower. So, but I think that the, the principle of that is, is pretty on point. Uh, and it's, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about before too, where I had a plan in mind, but if I got to a point where I'm going out for a run and it's clear to me that I'm not feeling a hundred percent or not good enough, I'm going to either stop that run or I'm going to slow down significantly and just go completely by feel and just spin my wheels and not pay attention to pace or anything like that. So, you know, that's just, I mean, I even had a day like that in my, in my training plan too, where, uh, I had done a pretty decent amount of work and I was just going to go out for like an easy recovery run. I got down to the end of the block and I was just like, Nope, it's not happening today. So I'm going to be better served, not running at all. Maybe I'll take our dog Stella for a walk around the block this afternoon or something like that. But otherwise like, you know, catch up on, on, on some rest and, and kind of get going again after that. And I think like someone who's planning really, or is doing a really good job of planning, they're going to build that sort of thing, that sort of scenario into their plan. Uh, like I usually do have that opportunity where like, I don't have it planned down to the day so specific that if that comes up, it's like, Oh, now I have to rewrite the whole thing. It's like, no, I've got some, some buffer room for those sort of situations because if you truly listen to their body, they're probably going to come up. And if you're truly actually working hard enough on your hard days, it's hardly even a question. And I think this is maybe where Ian's getting into it too, where I see like someone goes out and they, they're supposed to do a hard workout and they do the workout, but it's really not as physiologically taxing to them as it was supposed to be on paper. So then the next day they go out for a, a like a mediocre paced run because they can, because they didn't tax themselves enough the day to for to actually need to take the day off or to take the rest day. So um, I think that's kind of falls under the, the principle of like, if as a coach, I'm thinking like, well, if I plan a rest day for this athlete and they get to the rest day and they want to run, that more or less means we didn't do enough in that buildup to that needed rest day. Another interesting conversation I had, as I mentioned, was just this last episode of Off the Couch uh, with David Roche. And I think it would be fair to say that David really tries to pull the focus away from specific race results. Um, and I thought this was really interesting because like you, on the other hand here, are very much targeting a specific result and, you know, a record. So on the surface, at least, it might look like there's um, a different set of priorities or concerns, but I wanted to get your take on this. Yeah, no, that's a great question. And uh, I think there's a lot of parallels with what what David told you and kind of even my approach. Um, you know, I, I the first thing I do when I'm working with someone else and I do the same thing with myself is I ask like, well, what is the reason for this? So if I got to a point where the reason was purely to try to break the 100 mile world record, but I hated what I was doing and it was like just you know a burden on my shoulders so to speak day in and day out and was affecting the rest of my life i would bail on that in a second but you know i'm really curious and i'm actually legitimately interested in that so that has just you know motivated me to enjoy the process as well but one thing i will talk about people when they're planning whether they're raising stuff is like well what do you actually want to be doing because you know i've had people come to me for coaching and they they want to run you know a race and I ask them why and they say, well, it's because, you know, I want to get in shape. I want to be active and, you know, running seems like the easiest way to do that. And I'm like, so let's look at 
and I, and to some degree you're talking yourself out of business if you're a coach doing this, but it's like, you know, you're, you're like, well, do you really like to run or do you just like to move? Do you like to jump over hurdles? Do you, you know, there's all sorts of ways to move your body and have fun. And as adults, we've kind of lost this, uh, ability, I think to just kind of go out and have recess. And I think this is where David and I are like, like spot on in line with one another is like, we got to make this thing enjoyable. Like if you're a coach and you can make the process enjoyable for the person, meaningful for the person, that's what counts. So the way I look at it is if I go out and have a race, have a bad day, that's one day. But if I have an entire training block where the whole thing is miserable, that's four months out of my life. So, uh, you know, if I get to a point where I'm no longer interested, no longer curious about this stuff, then you know, I'll, I'll stop and redirect to something else I am interested in. Or, you know, maybe I'll just take some time away from it and do some other stuff. And, and I have kind of done that in the past too, because you can look at what I've done as a six year journey and it certainly is. But part of the reason I think I got to where I did on Saturday was because rather than thinking about it all year for both seasons to some degree, I started thinking about like, well, let's forget about that for four months and, you know, train for the San Diego hundred or, you know, train for the Javelina hundred or something like that and just do something different. And I think that's where it gets interesting because, you know, our bodies, once we get them to a point where they're really fit, and I really like this concept of like, when you're talking about your fitness level, not not trying to stay 100% year round, but also in the same regard, not getting like so unfit that you're starting from scratch. So like, kind of like always be 80, 90% of the way there. And then when it's time to strike, sharpen that spear to 100%, get that race done, let yourself get a little defitted and, uh, you know, enjoy life, enjoy recovery, but don't get it to the point where like, you gotta like go off the, no, no pun intended, but go off the couch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and I think that's what really makes it enjoyable then because uh, I'm, I'm never like working overly hard to get back to where I was before, but I'm also not always trying to keep myself at a point that is unsustainable either. And I think just the mental side of that is where it gets interesting because that's where you can lose interest. That's where, uh, you know, you can, you can stop wanting to do what you're doing and we, I think to a degree as ultra marathon runners, we need to take advantage of the vast variety. I mean, I always joke around about ultra marathon sports because you could have something like the speed goat 50 K where you're, you know, running 50 kilometers and 10,000 feet of climbing and descending, or you can sign up for six days in the dome at the Pettit center and see how far you can run in six days on a 443 meter track. <laughs> it's like, those are the same sport yep. <laughs> or under the same umbrella. So there's options out there. So like if you're not physically taxed, but you're just lost interest, well, maybe just switch what you're kind of training for and try something different. Can we go back to Saturday? Yeah. Okay. How many laps did you run? Um, that's a good question. I always forget because <laughs> it's, I've, I've like learned to kind of calculate based on a 400 meter track because that's usually what these are but the pettit center was 443 so it's some like obscure number like i think it was like 358 or somewhere in that neighborhood um yeah i'd have to look though to get the exact number <laughs> so right you there's so many people right who they kind of do the thing like oh god yeah no i can't run on a treadmill or <laughs> no no i cannot run on a track and um they're not talking about running 358 laps. They're talking about running like maybe 10 to 
20 laps. So are you just weird in this way that this doesn't bother you or you actually like it or you just don't mind it? Or are you like everybody else just needs to suck it up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, uh, it's it's equal parts maybe personality and equal parts just like this duality of like it's a challenge but it's also exciting at the same time um so the way i describe it is like you can look at it and in a glass half empty type of a framework and be like how monotonous is that just over and over again and boredom blah 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 or you can look at it as like okay there's really nothing in my way so i can really get in tune with what my body's telling me uh, like every step is pretty uniform. So like your feedback is like really valuable in that scenario. And you can really learn yourself in those type of environments. The other thing I really like about it where I think it's a little bit of a divergent from some of the more kind of popular trail events is that when you're on a 400 plus or 400 meter track and you see, you have the opportunity to see every one of your splits or calculate your exact pace, like it's all you, like it's transparent. It's like if I slow down two seconds, it's because I slowed down two seconds. It's not because there was a hill there. It's not because like, you know, I dropped my water bottle and had to pick it up. It's not because I missed my aid station pack and bonked because I didn't get my nutrition. It's like if I mess up a lap with my nutrition, I get it less than two minutes later anyway. So it's really not a big deal. So when you get to that level of uh, just, you know, non-environmental factors, I suppose, then you can really just focus on like what your body's actually telling you. And it's, it's, it can be brutal because if it tells you, yeah, you didn't do it right, then it's like, there's nowhere to hide, but you have a day like I did on Saturday and I feel like it's so fulfilling because it's like, I just executed that and I have every lap split to show for it. And it's accurate to say you went in that day with the number 640 on your mind? Yeah, I thought going in that like that was kind of my peak potential at my current fitness. So I thought like if I if I had a perfect day and everything was just just like humming along and like and it, it, to some degree it's silly to think of a perfect day in 100 miles because it's almost one of those things where inevitably, you know, something's going to happen that if you could erase it, it would improve you a little bit, but you know, when you're out there that long, it's just a reality that something's going to come up. So like, if you look at my race specifically, like there's two things that I see, um, that made it, I guess, 647 and a half versus 640. And, and the big one is definitely like the lane two type of stuff, you know, like it's possible I was running 640 pace. Um, the other one is just now, and this is some somewhat inevitable, but just bathroom stops. So, this race, I, I talk, I talk about this in kind of like ranges. So when I'm, when I'm at my most efficient at desert solstice in 2015, I stopped twice to use the bathroom for no more than 90 seconds, but maybe even closer to 60 seconds at the dome on Saturday. I was what I would consider about as efficient as you can expect, but it was more time wasted. I was, I stopped three times and it was, I think around four minutes total. So like, you know, maybe I can get a couple minutes there. Maybe I can get a few minutes from being in lane one and then I'm down at a 640 flat. Uh, you know, and it, that's an intriguing number to me and not to diverge too much. But I mean, if you do the math, 640 pace for 100 miles is 11.06.40. So 
that's dangerously, dangerously close to sub 11. And uh, personally, I think like, you know, it gets weird because you have these like these labels like, oh, Zach's the world record holder for 100 miles, world record holder for the 12 hour. That must mean he's the best at 100 miles or the best at 12 hours. And it's like, it, it means I'm the one who ran it the fastest to date for sure. But it's in a sport like ultra marathoning where there's such a variety of different stuff. Um, I have so much respect for the other guys in the sport that are like really doing it, doing a, a solid job of representing uh, what it takes to put out peak performance. And I have no doubt in my mind in North America alone, we have like, of people in the sport of ultra marathoning, not just, I'm not talking like, oh, well, if the 205 marathoners came into the sport, every record would get blasted. It's like, yeah, it's like, well, yeah, maybe, but you know, if Roger Bannister thought like that, it would be, you know, he probably would have never even tried to run the mile. So, uh, you know, but I think to get back to the point, I think like within the sport of ultra running in North America, I think there's a whole stable of guys who can go under 11 hours. Um, I, I would like to be one of them. I think there's guys who can, I think the ceiling for a hundred miles is, much closer to 10 and a half hours than it is like, um, you know, in the 11 hour range when we get, if we want to fast forward time and assume that people are going to get interested in it, you know, enough people that are just genetic freaks and have the work ethic to match, go for it and train specifically for it. So like my, I guess my appreciation for my, uh, my efforts on Saturday and the way I see it is that um, I hope I'm just a stepping stone towards what is capable. And I, I really, really would like, I really enjoy that aspect of it. Cause like, that's the thing that doesn't go away. Like no matter what the record ends up being 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, like, you know, I was a stepping stone to be, to get to that. And that's kind of a cool thing to be, uh, especially if you get into the kind of history of the sport and stuff like that, you see that progression and it'd be part of that is probably the most meaningful thing for me out of the whole ordeal. Hmm. That's very cool. Um, and a nice segue uh, into what I, another thing I've been really looking forward to talking with you about is just other world records. I know that you are a bit keyed in to what's going on in, in terms of, again, just stuff at the limits of human performance and pushing past those limits. So from your point of view, I'm just interested in what other records out there in the running world and maybe outside of the running world that you personally just find really interesting. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think the one that your listeners are probably going to think about that's kind of fresh on everyone's mind would be Jim's 50 mile best that he did in May this year. Um, phenomenal performance, by the way. I mean, he took down a world best. By by Bruce Fordyce, who's uh, you know a legend in the sport. I think it was he seven time champion of uh, comrades or something like that. Uh, yeah, so he he took that down, and I think it's easy to look at that and be like, okay, there we go, that's the ceiling now. Um, I think if we looked at Jim's training going into that and where his priorities really were at, we would not be too far of a stretch to think Jim is gonna could go run. 545. So I think, uh, I think Jim, I mean, Jim is his own in his own league for the most part, but like, uh, I think like that record for him anyway is, is very breakable. Um, I mean, it's kind of interesting too, because like, 
I guess when he did it, he got a little bit of, uh, I don't want to say backlash, but kind of like a little bit of like, oh, well, yeah, that's great. But if we sent all this, the comrades South African champions onto that, they'd all run 545, something like that. And, uh, you know, my, my thought about this is, like, well, yeah, but so could Jim. So uh, I think that's more or less a ploy to get him to come out to comrades, which I think we'll see anyway. But uh, uh, the, if we get into records that I think are incredibly stout, it'll be tough to break. Um, two come to mind. The, the 100 kilometer world record is like 610. To put that in perspective, right now the American record is 627 by Max King. Now, Max did that in a less than an ideal environment, in my opinion. I was at that race. It was the World Championships in 2014 in Doha. And it was humid and it was run at night. So, I mean, I think Max is capable of going well under that in ideal situations. Uh, I think Jim is. I think Jim wants that record. So I think at some point he'll take a good solid crack at it. Uh, but it's going to be tough. I mean, that's 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 a stout time, 610, which is probably why Jim's interested in it. Um, the other one that really stands out is Giannis Kuros' 24-hour world record. He ran 188, I think, 0.6 or something miles in 24 hours. So if for those out there, do the math. That's about a 730-mile pace for 24 straight hours. So, I mean, that and that counts everything from bathroom breaks, whatever. Uh, and that is a very stout time. To put that in perspective, the American record for 24 hours is Mike Morton at 172 and a half. And anyone here who knows Mike knows that that dude is iron-willed. Um, I think Mike could run it faster than that or further than that, but 16 miles further is what the world record is. So it's like, you know, that's a that's a stout performance that um, I would like to see some guy. I think it's breakable. I don't think there's any reason to believe that Giannis is the best we've ever seen at that distance or at that timed event. I think it's more of a product of let's get some interest in it and have some groups of guys kind of targeting it and then we'll maybe get closer an inch closer and eventually eclipse it um but that one i think would that one's probably the furthest down the road out of any of those that i mentioned the sub two hour marathon time thoughts yeah so in a scenario like the sub two project i think yeah they could probably do that in the next year or two if they just kept cracking at it um on a legit course where like all the things are in play, like, you know, like you'll get a little breeze. You don't have a pace car blocking the wind for you. You don't have pacers per se. Um, and you don't have uh, like a loop essentially. Like I think, what didn't they do that on like a, like a formula one course or, or uh, some sort of like a, like it was like a one mile loop, I think, or something like that. I think wasn't that's it? right. Yeah. Um, so like, I mean, that's all like, I mean, that's just like, like uh, almost to a degree taking some elements out of what I think the marathon community probably thinks as like a pure attempt. So with that said, you know, what was it? Two hours and 27 seconds that, that Kipchoge did on that. Um, I mean, I just think that last little bit is going to be a lot to get. I don't know that it's impossible, but uh, I don't, I don't expect to see a, like a 159 at like Berlin or like some of these major marathons anytime soon but uh that's not to say that i wouldn't be thrilled to see it happen and be wrong about that 
This next question I want to ask, and I feel like I'm warranted in asking you this, particularly given the fact that you host this human performance outlier podcast, and you've been privy to a ton of really interesting conversations here. But if we're stepping outside of kind of endurance records and thinking and looking at um, strength records, whether that's in like weightlifting or strength and speed records, if we're talking about, if we want to kind of, you know, bring under this umbrella, you know, sprint records, that type of thing, or mid-distance records, from where you sit, does it seem like we're seeing more activity and progression on the endurance end of things or on the strength slash speed end of things? Yeah, I think... um... I guess if you look at it in terms of progression, you could make an argument for some endurance events, like maybe like the marathon and then ultra running to a degree just because it's grown a lot. So the progress relative to where it was at is pretty big. Um, But the strength stuff and the sprint stuff, I feel like those sports have been very much more on the public eye historically so like they'd be starting from a much higher spot so whether they're actually getting more popular or not is like anyone's i mean someone probably knows i don't but uh um you know they may just be at such a higher spot from like public interest to begin with that even with big strides and some of these other distance-based events they're not going to catch up to it uh i will say this though one thing i find incredibly interesting about the state of American distance running and outside of the ultra running side of things and more in the lines of the track and field marathon and stuff like that is it does seem like we have the bandwidth as a community, as a general like American community to maybe recognize a a couple people. And there's so many savages out there who are running like, you know, 1335 Ks that you know are working a full-time job because a 1335k maybe gets you some shoes and a travel stipend or something like that whereas like i mean just having my background be in track and cross country i know what a 13 i mean i've never run a 1335k (laughs) but I, i i i can appreciate what that would take so i see these guys uh, you know, walking around who have that sub 14 5k speed. And it just baffles me how we, they don't have like full time employment doing that. Because I think that's such a cool feat of human performance. Uh, and I think like, especially when you get down to the community level, like, um, if I was like, if I had like, like, let's, let's play a thought experiment here and say like, I had like an indisposable budget, I ran a company or something like that especially if it was in in the world of like sports and running and whatnot, I would just sign like 30 of these guys to like, like livable wages and just kind of have them like pick a region of the country and just target the local races there. And, you know, I think like you, you get, you'd get like these, these smaller communities that have never seen someone break 15 minutes in the 5k now all of a sudden there's this guy here who in their eyes is like the best in the world i think the level of motivation that that would give to say like middle school and high school runners would be such a good service to the sport um but we don't have that environment and i think part of it is uh 
just it's it's tough to market distance running to the average person because it would be like if we put on you know the 10 kilometer a 10 kilometer track race if you don't have a background in in track and field at the 10 kilometer distance it's going to be very boring up until like the last two minutes so like we need to find a way as a community to do a better job of marketing these things so it's exciting for people to watch i think we need to get the community involved i think the running community as a whole in the u.s is huge i mean there's a lot of people who identify that as an outlet where like oh i can sign up for 5k anywhere i can sign up for a 10k anywhere a marathon half marathon i mean they're everywhere um so like if we can kind of create an attachment to some of these people i think that would be pretty cool for the sport and pretty motivating for kind of the younger kids and people that are trying to get into it uh but yeah that's just maybe my two cents <laughs> no i think that's really interesting and i think as we were talking a little bit prior um you know before we started recording you know your perspective on just uh you know as we were talking a bit about some of the other records out there I definitely got the sense from you that you were like, well, if if sponsorships were shining a bigger light on these or there were bigger prizes attached to some of these, uh, you thought that those were significant factors in terms of like, if you want to ask what records do you think will be broken, I think a big answer of yours, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's like, well, where is there being a light shined or where is there being like the financial incentive or the financial resources and it sounds to me if you were like we could almost not totally arbitrarily but just like pick an event and if we gave people the um the various uh, the, the levels of support that they would need seems to me you think that we could be moving the needle on a lot of these records yeah i mean i i kind of think of it as like there's world record potential you know walking around doing a nine to five and not even participating in the sport that they could break a world record in so the the answer to that in terms of drawing those individuals into it so we can actually actualize their potential would be given giving them a reason to do it or giving them the exposure to it that would ignite that fire like I think of myself like I got into running you know because I was exposed to it like had I not gotten exposed to it, I probably wouldn't be a distance runner today, regardless of how much I enjoy it now. Um, so like if you go back to my example of like if we would just like kind of scatter some of these guys who are just outside of the the top end of the spear so that they, they can't realistically quit their job. Um, if we give them that opportunity to do that, now we're exposing some of these potential world record holders who maybe never even thought about giving it a crack. Uh, we're giving them that opportunity to see that and be motivated by it and be influenced by it. And I think that that it's, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost like you know, think of a periodized distance running plan. It's like you can look at that last eight weeks of like a 5K training plan and be like, okay, that's where the bread and butter is. That's where I'm going to get faster. But if you don't put those first eight weeks in of base building and stuff like that, it's, you know, don't even bother. So like you, you got to have that foundation there. So I think like, the recognition and the resources for some of these these guys and gals who are kind of on the cusp of being maybe Olympians or on the back end of the Olympic pack, giving them the resources to be able to actually advocate for the sport and be educators of the sport would make 
like that, like whatever, whatever distance ends up becoming, maybe they all would at that point if you get enough people, but you know, that's where you get the interest and the, the passion for it, I think. So it strikes me that there's always a perverse question that gets asked literally right after somebody wins like a Super Bowl or a marathon or sets a world record. And that perverse question is, you know, so what's next? <laughs> and I mean, you've already intimated a little bit. You've, you've talked about a couple things and a couple times, um, but let me ask the perverse question right on the heels of your two new world records. Yeah, so that's that's what's kind of interesting about the whole ordeal. So people listening to this may piece it together if they if they think of it, they'll be like, Well, Zach sounds like he knows what he's talking about when it comes to periodized training plan. Well, why the heck did he pick that short shorter than normal plan if he was executing a well strategized route to his races this year? And uh, the reality is I did do that. And originally the, my, my, my goal race or my peak race for the second half of the year is going to be Spartathlon over in Greece, which is a 153 mile race on kind of gravel paved roads, um, relatively hilly compared to most kind of road races you'd maybe see here in the States. But, uh, you know, that fit the timeline perfectly. So the, the, the interesting thing about it was this race at the dome was a little bit late in terms of getting getting uh, announced because they were trying to find they were held hostage essentially by the world 24-hour championships in france because it took forever for them to pin down the date and the place for that so they kind of had to wait for that so they didn't like necessarily compete with it too much um if they were going to draw like runners to this one without having them be too worried about that uh so like basically long answer short is that the opportunity to do this run in the dome came up later than I would have liked, but uh, it worked out beautifully as far as I can tell. And at this point, I'm focusing on recovery, but I'm definitely going to be going to the Spartathlon and viewing it as like, uh, here's here's an opportunity to have another good race. Uh, historically, I do more than one race in the fall kind of winter time frame. So the dome was the first one. So I feel like I do have maybe a little more in the tank than I would if it was like desert solstice, which is in December. And oftentimes when I, by the time I get to desert solstice, you know, I've done a few races because it's so late in the year uh, that I'm, I'm hoping at least that the relative lower intensity and longer duration will play to my favor since I won't have to just go out and replicate exactly what I just did. Um, that could be a little fatiguing both mentally and physically, I think. So really I just need to kind of bounce back and get all the, all the laps out of my legs from the dome and then maybe get a couple key like long slow runs that are more spartathlon pace based in the next uh next couple weeks but then it'll just be kind of resting up and seeing how that goes and the spartathlon is when it's the end of september it'll be almost exactly five weeks after my race on saturday and again you feel okay about that timing or you wouldn't mind if you had a couple more weeks uh, I mean, in a perfect world, I'd probably like, I think, so my, my philosophy on some of this is like when you go longer in distance and lower in intensity, it's a lot easier to kind of get something in there because like, you just don't have to like, you don't have to like tax the central nervous system as much to do the work for that. You're just kind of out there plodding along versus like, like race specific pace anyway. Like I'm gonna have to actually force myself to run slower to prepare for what my average pace will be at Spartathlon. 
So for me, and maybe this is just mental, but like for me, that seems more achievable because essentially like I've done kind of the speed work already and the, the injury risk I think is really low for me to go out and the injury and burnout risk is really low for me to go out and just do some really, really slow long runs. Those are tend to be kind of enjoyable. Um, it's just when they stretch into the 20 plus hour range where they become non-enjoyable. <laughs> so I have to have enough, uh, enough desire I guess on race day to do that but the training I don't think is going to be like quite as daunting as like what I've maybe seen in the past so I'm 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 confident in that I'm motivated to do it and physically will be in a good place to to have a decent race now I mean maybe I won't have as good of a race as I possibly could have but Spartathlon will always be there it's probably fair to imagine that regardless of what I did this is the type of an event that would probably take a few cracks to really find my max potential. And Giannis Kuros has a course record there, 20 hours, 25 minutes, and it's like two hours faster than the next fastest guy. And I think he did that on his third attempt. So, you know, someone as good as him, it took a few times to figure it out. So uh, I don't see why it wouldn't take me a couple times. Uh, my wife's father's side of the family lives out in Greece, so we've got a lot of reason to head out that way. So I feel like Spartathlon will probably be a race I do a few times in my career and um, I'd like to have a great race the first time around. Uh, but if I don't and can gain a lot of uh, knowledge of the event and kind of how it all plays out, it will be cool to have that information for a future one at there at that event too. Any thoughts yet on when you think you might be back at the dome trying to crack that sub 11? Yeah, I think, um, well, I mean, for me personally, I mean, I think there's guys who could maybe go under 11 in, a, in the environment I had on Saturday. Uh, for me to do it, it's probably got to be a lane one the whole time. Uh, it's probably got to be next to perfect weather. Um, probably some competition just because then you just have a little more, more you're, you're not just chasing ghosts at that point then if you have the two or three other guys out there. Uh, so I still really love the event itself. So I'm not going to kind of say like, all right, I got what I got out of that. Now it's time to move on to something else. I might just be a little more picky and choosy as to which ones I, I target. Uh, Cause I do have other interests too. I'd like to become a better trail runner. I think there's a lot of skill sets in that world that I still need to develop in order to really be competitive. Um, I also think like, I also like just runnable courses in general. They don't have to be like as optimized as possible. And there's some pretty cool, like, fast hundred mile courses. Like, I mean, I did tunnel Hill last year. That's certainly one of them where it's not, it's not perfect in terms of chasing speed, but it's pretty darn close. So I, I, if I have to pick a favorite type of running race to do, it's one where I can run the whole way. So it's when you start to add in enough, um, enough reason to need to hike and power hike for a substantial part where I start losing interest. And so I kind of like, I don't mind, I don't mind the hiking. I just don't want to be doing it for like 50% of the time. Uh, so like, you know, I've, there's, there's other things that are kind of worth, I think, trying out and fine tuning and stuff like that too. But I think there'll be some opportunities in the future too, to improve on the efficiency of the events itself. That'll make it a little easier to shave some time without even having to run faster. Um, I'm 33. I'm confident in my desire to be in the sport and my physical progress going forward that I can still make some improvements and and then uh, maybe get a few minutes from from just sticking with it a little longer yet too so those are all kind of interesting things it's the biggest change really is like 
there's not as big of this like uh thing on my race splits that says okay that's the spot to make the improvement whereas like at desert solstice 2015 i can look at that last 20 miles and find lap after lap after lap of potential improvement (laughs) so uh, that's where it gets a little just a little different i guess yeah well, hey, man, I want to let you get going, but I've really enjoyed this conversation a lot on a lot of different fronts. And one of the big reasons I've enjoyed this conversation is just for the chance to be able to say congratulations. I mean, I think this is just a very cool thing uh, that you've just done. And I love that you called it your masterpiece. I, I know that's not said out of arrogance. That's just said as an honest assessment of this this period training, the race itself, the execution on all of these different elements. And this has been really, really cool on a lot of fronts. So very much appreciate the time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a blast to kind of unpack the sport and uh, my own kind of passions as well. Much success to you going forward. And I'm going to be keeping my eye on that, uh, on this big race in Greece at the end of September and be rooting for you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. All right, man. You take care. That's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Zach for the conversation. And you can go to ZachBitter.com to learn a whole lot more about Zach and to see where you can follow him on social. And you can find links to his Human Performance Outliers podcast, which is just a wealth of information. I also want to say thanks to Luke Alley for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you are enjoying these off-the-couch episodes, we would very much appreciate it if you would tell your running-loving or running-hating friends about it. Leave us a nice rating or review in iTunes, or leave us a comment in the show notes to this episode on the Blister website to let us know what you think. Until next time, keep moving forward, and we will talk to you again next week.